Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 138, air date June 29th, 2017. Well, it's an interesting question about the history of the invention of email. So let's give a little bit of historical context. You know, let's go back to 1978. What did the world of 1978 look like? If you go back to 1978, you have to understand, first of all, in that environment, uh, computers were just coming into being. And a computer would fill the size of this room. They were mainframe computers. So, you know, as a 14-year-old boy, I had a very interesting background on what brought me to being that 14-year-old boy. And let me just give you a little bit of that background. You know, I grew up in India, and I grew up in two Indias. You know, I was born in India in 1963, but the India I grew up in had many uh, different aspects to it. You know, I was born in Bombay. If anyone's been to Bombay, you'll notice that it's a very cosmopolitan city. Every religion is there, every caste is there, every language is spoken there, so it's a fascinating city. But unlike the typical city boy, I also had another life. I grew up in a small village in deep South India. And in that village, there was no running electricity. My grandmother was actually a village healer, but more importantly, she worked 16 hours a day as a poor farmer. You know, her hands were filled with tattoos, and on weekends, what would happen was she would uh, have a whole procession of people would come to her small village home. She would observe their face, and there's an ancient Indian system called Samudrika Lakshanam, which meant face reading. So based on observing the face, she would understand what was going on in that person's body, and then she would make them very personalized, uh, you know, a diagnosis and personalized cure. So some people got certain mixtures, other people got different mixtures, some people got certain mantras, massages, etc. What we today call personalized medicine. So as a child, I was fascinated that my grandmother was able to do this. Here was a woman with no degrees, and I saw her empirically heal people. So I was deeply moved to have this real desire to be a healer like her, you know, in some form of the other. So in 1970, you know, my parents decide to move to the United States, which you have to understand is a pretty incredible thing. India has a caste system, and we were considered untouchables, what we call low caste. The fact that my parents even got educated is a story unto itself, but both my parents somehow got educated, and they decided to take another adventure to come to the United States, primarily for adventure, but primarily for my sisters and I's um, more, you know, greater educational opportunities. So when they came here, this was 1970, and we came here at a time when it was the United States of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was, it was during the Vietnam War still, and this little Indian family, like a little spaceship, moves to Patterson, New Jersey, which was primarily all African American, and this Indian family moves there. And, um, and you have to understand, Patterson, New Jersey, one of the poorest cities in the United States, primarily, um, you know, very segregated neighborhood. So in that environment, you know, I learned a lot about America. My uh, intuitions were made clear about what this country was really about. But within seven years, my parents kept moving to different public school systems. So after Patterson, we moved to the next public school system, which was a little bit better, called Clifton. And then we moved to Persephone and then eventually to um, Livingston. Throughout this process, again, I had that inspiration of not only my grandmother, but also, you know, I had experience in India, the caste system myself, so I had this deep desire to understand medicine, but also this deep desire for justice and seeing a better world. So those two motivations made me work very hard, not only in academics, but also in uh, athletics. But by the time I was 13 years old, I had finished up all my mathematics courses, 
in our junior high school. In fact, the high school system didn't have any more course. I finished calculus by, that, uh, uh, by 13 years old, and I was getting very bored. I had some humanities classes to finish up, and my parents were considered, uh, concerned. My parents were concerned that I was going to drop out of high school. And interestingly enough, something fortuitous takes place. My mom was working at a small medical college where her colleague gave her a little newspaper clipping. And in that newspaper clipping was an advertisement for identifying 40 students in the United States who would be accepted into an elite computer science program at the equally elite Corant Institute of Mathematical Sciences in New York University. And this program was run by Professor Henry Mullish. And what Professor Mullish said the vision was he knew that one day computers would likely be everywhere and you would need these things called software programmers. So he was willing to invest in training 40 of America's best students, high school students, in this intensive program, eight-week program at NYU. And I was fortunate uh, to be selected, the only Indian kid, the only kid from New Jersey. And my mom would drop me off at 5 a.m. at the Path Newark station. I would take this train in to Washington, uh, uh, park, which is NYU with a lot of drugs, a lot of crime, but I would walk through there and I would go to school at NYU and we learned eight programming languages. It was an intensive program, eight to twelve hours a day. We learned basic uh, COBOL, uh, art speak, a number of these very important languages at the time, Fortran. I graduated top of the class. Now after I finished that, again, you know, I have to now go back to school and there's really not much there. So my mother again came to support me and she had met a professor at that medical college um, and he uh, gave me the opportunity to have an interview with him and he was immediately impressed by me and he said look come work for me and I got to understand I'm a high school student only 14 years old this is new for Livingston High School the concept of a student take working full-time but a, a very lovely woman also uh, a visionary, an independent studies teacher named Stella Oleksiak, um, negotiated with the administration on my behalf, the school administration, so this 14-year-old kid in the middle of school could go work full-time at what was then known as the College of Medicine Dentistry of New Jersey, which is now part of Rutgers University. So I started working full-time. The initial problem I was offered was in medical research to identify using computers why babies were dying in their sleep, and I built a set of algorithms using computers to analyze sleep data, to understand the correlation of baby sleep death. But while I was doing that, people realized I could program pretty well. And I was given this other very interesting challenge. And this is really where the invention of email starts. You have to understand, you have to understand in 1978, as I mentioned, who used computers. It was, frankly, uh, white men who were highly technical, and it was an elite group. You had to be very sophisticated and smart to use a computer. Highly trained PhDs, scientists, some students. In that medical college, Dr. Les Michelson, who was my um, mentor and advisor, had set up what we call a wide area computer network. Nothing to do with the internet. We're between uh, the college in Newark, the, the uh, affiliate college in Piscataway, the campus and the college in New Brunswick. He had set up a wide area network, three mainframe computers that communicated. You know, and this was mainly used for scientific data processing. But in that medical college, or that network of campuses right there, Every doctor's office had a secretary. You have to understand, in 1978 again, what was the role of women? Women basically could have potentially four jobs. Either they could be a secretary, they could either be a school teacher, a housewife, or a nurse. But in that college, every doctor researcher had a secretary. 
And on that secretary's desktop, a physical wooden or metal desk, was the inbox, the outbox. Behind her was a, was a system of file folders. Underneath her desk was a trash can. Uh, on her desk was an address book, a, a little box for paper clips, which she would use for attachments. And the important thing on her desk was this thing called a typewriter. And she would put paper into this typewriter, typically white paper, and she would type away what was called the memo, the proverbial memo. And this memo had a very particular structure. To, where she would list the recipient, one or more. The from, who was, was from. The subject line, the date. And sometimes she had what was called CC, which meant carbon copy or blind carbon copy. And then there was a line. And then underneath that was the body of the memo. And sometimes she would put ENCL, which means enclosures. And that referred to other documents that were attached. In that case, she would attach a paperclip. Now, when she had to do a carbon copy, she literally would take one paper, white paper, put a piece of carbon paper, another white paper, she'd roll it into this typewriter and have to click away and type. If she had to do 10 carbon copies, you can imagine, she, sometimes she was there for one or two days. It was a very, very manual process based on the paper mail system. Every secretary had one of these desktops. And when they created a, a memo, it was put into what was called an inter-office mail envelope or an inter-organizational mail envelope. Some people called it an interdepartmental mail envelope. It would get put in, it would get addressed, a little string would um, zip it up, and then it was sometimes put into these pneumatic tubes. These pneumatic tubes were like the Ethernet before Ethernet, and they connected the buildings. If it was another campus, they would put it in a car or a van, it would get sent. This was called the inter-office or inter-organizational mail system. And this is how university, the researchers, the administrators collaborated. So in this inter-office mail system was a medium for collaboration. By collaboration would mean that if they were to hire someone, sometimes they'd attach a resume, it would get passed around, forwarded mail. Sometimes they would collaborate to call people to meetings, broadcast mail, what we today call, you know, you call marketing messages. Um, if they had grant applications, but this was really the vehicle for collaboration. Without it, uh, and you needed all the parts, you needed the inbox, you needed the outbox. Sometimes you had registered mail, which means people would have to sign for it. So this was this very complex inter-office mail system, and Dr. Michelson challenged me, because he knew I was very competitive and I wanted to be challenged, to convert this entire system to the electronic replica on the computer. So what did I do? So this little 14-year-old kid, like an anthropologist, my customer was the secretary. I interviewed them, I understood all the features, and there were probably about close to 70, 80, 100 features of the system. It was a very complex system. After I enumerated those features, then I started designing the system. I used a database, which was there. I used a Fortran programming language and the computer network. I didn't use anyone else's systems. Again, this was independent of the internet or any of that. And then I started writing code. In fact, I wrote 50,000 lines of code. It wasn't simple code. Fortran was not designed for text processing. It was very difficult. And it was across a system of 35 programs, which interrelated. We only had 8K of memory, random access memory. So I had to actually write memory management tools. So fundamentally, I wrote a system which uh, grasped all these features or captured all these features. But here was the important thing. There were two important features. It had to be user-friendly. Remember, you had a secretary who was used to the typewriter. And the people in this system were not going to move away from the paper mail system to the electronic system unless it was bulletproof. It had to work, because they knew the paper mail system, you sent a letter, it got there. So I had to also make it bulletproof. When an email got sent, it had to be reliable. It had to be reliable across a network and user-friendly. 
and that's what I created. And I called this system email. Five letters, E-M-A-I-L. This was not an obvious term. I was the first to create the term. Also, why did I call it email? It was not an obvious term in the sense uh, uh, because the reason I called it email, to be more particular, was the Fortran programming language had six character limit on any variables. And the operating system only allowed the applications to have five characters. So imagine like the apps you run on your iPhones only have five character names. So I called it email. Obviously, it was probably eight or nine characters. I may have called it electromail. So it was not an obvious term. So I built this system. I had to write the user's manual. I had to train people. I had to quality assurance. I was a single one-person software engineering shop. And the initial system came out in 78. Then I built variations, 79, 80, et cetera. In 1980, there was an article that came out in the local newspaper talking about this kid who had invented uh, this first electronic mail system. And at that time, today, there's a very famous science award called the Intel Awards. In those days, it was called the Westinghouse Science Awards. Some people call it the Baby Nobel Prizes. And I was asked to apply for that, so I applied for it, and I won the Westinghouse Honors Award. There were a different honors award, but I was um, uh, proud to be one of the recipients of it. After that, I went on to MIT. You know, 1981, I uh, got accepted to MIT. And I remember when I first attended MIT, the front page of the MIT official newspaper highlighted three students out of the class of 1041 who was coming. This was a class of 1981. And I was highlighted and there talked about, you know, we have three very interesting students. One of them created this electronic mail system. Now the interesting thing is I was brought up to be a humble Indian. I didn't think much about it. You know, I remember putting it down and I went on to do my other stuff. Remember, I was deeply interested in medicine. So I went and completed my uh, work in uh, electrical engineering, particularly biomedical engineering at MIT. Went out, started a company, came back to MIT, did another master's um, and another uh, master's also in mechanical engineering, one in visual studies, one in mechanical engineering. Then I started doing research in 1993 on uh, something related to uh, uh, what my grandmother was doing, that Samudraka Lakshanam, pattern analysis, or artificial intelligence. So starting in 1993, I was building a whole new way of analyzing any pattern, be it a handwriting signal, a document, ultrasound signals, um, any type of signal to use technology um, to automatically understand those signals. In the middle of that, something interesting happened, which was my second life with email. This is, remember, 1993. You, one has to understand, again, historically, during 1978, starting up until around 1993, Email was really a business application. You don't need the internet. It ran on wide area and local area networks, which was a business tool um, where people connected computers and they would have email applications running. After I invented email, there were applications uh, running like Eudora or Lotus Notes. These were all in the corporate um, inter-office, inter-organizational environment. In fact, you didn't use the at symbol. You used the dot sometimes to separate the email address from the server address. The at symbol really, frankly, has no significance to email. In 1993, something interesting happened. The World Wide Web comes. Remember, the internet was around, but it was not accessible to ordinary people. The World Wide Web comes, and the World Wide Web gives a graphical user interface to the internet, which means now applications could be made accessible to ordinary consumers. Obviously, email, the killer app, gets translated to move from the inner office mail environment 
to a web-based application, so tools like Yahoo and Hotmail start coming out. When this occurs, email volume grows explosively, not from the, not just out of the business environment to the consumer environment. So one of the people who experiences rapid growth in email was the United States White House. Bill Clinton, when he was in office, started getting 5,000 emails a day, and it was doubling. And uh, Clinton and the White House started hiring interns to help them process this inbound email. So the way they did it was email would come in, believe it or not, they would print out the email, and they would categorize into one of 147 different categories, education, you know, let's say health, and they had form letters and they would respond back to an email, believe it or not, with a print mail, if the email had a postal mail address. So the White House runs a contest to see are there technologies that can automatically read the email and categorize them into one of those 40, 147 categories. Um, someone knew about my research, someone said, Shiva, you should participate in this contest. I was the only graduate student. The others were, I believe, four or five publicly and private companies. And uh, fortuitously, I ended up winning this contest. I had the highest accuracy. And my lawyer at the time said, Shiva, you should, you can always do your PhD. You should go and see if you can start a company on this. Much to the chagrin of my parents, my advisors, because everyone considers getting into MIT in a PhD program a huge thing. So I left MIT. And I started a company called EchoMail. So EchoMail, in an ironic way, was fixing the problems that email had caused. We got AT&T as a customer, then we got Nike as a customer, then Citigroup, American Express, and we grew this business. Originally, I thought this was going to be a two-year project. It ended up being a 10-year endeavor. We grew to $250 million in value. All the biggest companies in the world, organization, including the United States Senate, including the George Bush campaign, used us for analyzing inbound email and for doing outbound targeted email marketing. So all this had occurred, and at the end of that process, in 2003, uh, my advisor at MIT said, Shiva, you've got to come back, you've got to finish your PhD. And he said, there's this new field called systems biology. And he said, it's the opportunity for you to use your rich experience in computers and your deep love of medicine and bring them together. So I went back to MIT, and the challenge was, could you mathematically model the whole cell on the computer, because if you could do that, you could eliminate animal testing, you could do discoveries of combination drugs, which are very complex to do by killing animals and doing test tube. And then for me, it was an opportunity that could holistically understand biology, but potentially also rediscover the ancient medicines of India and the East and test them on the computer. So I built this technology over five years and I called it Cytosolve. Cytosolve. And Cytosolve was this wonderful framework which uh, allowed us to mathematically model any disease, any molecular reaction on the computer. And I wrote many papers on it, and that was by the end of 2007 and 8. And I finished my PhD in the creation of Cytosolve. So after that, I decided to take a break. Remember, I really was now, I felt back on my path with medicine. I'd created Cytosolve, so I decided, let me, I have my PhD in biology, let me go back to India and study Siddha from the Western perspective, could I actually understand what my grandmother is doing? That took me back to India in 2008 and 9 on a Fulbright scholarship. So in India, I traveled all over India and I made a major breakthrough. I discovered that the yogis and the rishis and the great sages of India weren't just people with saffron robes and you know, holy ash on their head. These people were actually system scientists. They were trying to understand the body as a framework, as a system. And the language that they had developed, called Siddha, Narveda, Vata, Pitta, Kapha, Prakriti, Indriyas, these are this whole language that they have describing this medical system, frankly, wasn't a medical system. 
It was actually a systems engineering approach, not to only understand the body, but all systems. And I was able to correlate the language of them directly to the language of modern control systems engineering. And we built this whole um, new science, which in some ways is a science of everything, which I call systems health. And that was a major breakthrough I made. And when I was in India, as I was getting ready to leave my uh, Fulbright work, I got recruited by the Indian government. And literally the day before I was about to take my flight back, the director general of the largest scientific institution in India called the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research invites me into his office and he said, why are you leaving for India? You've started many companies, you have four degrees from MIT, India needs people like you. This organization, CSIR, was started in 1947 to, to bring innovation to the Indian masses and we believe you can help us. There's lots of inventions. We believe among the 37 labs across the 4,000 scientists, could you help us and we'll appoint you as the additional secretary in the Indian government, you'll get a big bungalow, and you'll be given freedom to find and spin out innovations. So I decided to take this on. My father-in-law at the time said, you'd be stupid not to take this. This is, people even in their 60s aren't allowed this kind of position. So I took on that job. Uh, literally within about three months, I figured out a strategy to identify inventions and have an entrepreneurial business model. And then I traveled all across India from north to south, visited many of the labs, and what I found was an incredible amount of amazing Indian scientists. But what I also found was that these scientists were under the yoke of Indian feudalism in some sense. These labs were being run by feudal lords. You know, as though they didn't really care about advancement of India, they were caring more about their positions. In fact, the scientists within these organizations were actually being suppressed. They couldn't even come out with their innovations because their bosses were jealous of them. And I realized that I had basically been put in here as the MIT poster boy, and they expected me to be so happy with all my accoutrements of royalty in some sense that I wasn't going to do anything, but I really wanted to do something. So six months into this, I wrote a report, and this report was really about what I'd observed and how India could frankly innovate. And that report was CSIR Tech, the path forward. I distributed it to the scientists of CSIR to get their, back their comments. I wanted to make it open and transparent. However, this report got released to the press. And within three months, I'm sorry, three, this report got released to the press. Within three hours of this report being released, I was fired. My email account was shut down and I was evicted within a few days from my bungalow. Why? Because in that report, I also critiqued the feudal organization I saw, the nepotism, the corruption. And also I pointed out ways how this could change. Um, that led to literally death threats I received. Uh, a few days before I got uh, one threat of arrest, I gave an interview to the largest news organization in India in spite of the threats and the reason I did that was moments before I had to make a decision to go live or not, I noticed that within me was this deep connection to my grandparents. And that if I didn't speak up, what kind of child was I uh, or a son of India? So I did that and then I literally got on a third class train and I took a train all the way up to the border of Nepal, crossed the border because they didn't check passports, then took a, a plane from there to Kathmandu, then to Qatar, and then to London and home. And literally, the day I walked into my home, on my computer, another email appears. And this email was from the letter of, uh, an email from the editor of Nature India, asking me to write a commentary about what I had observed at CSIR. 
why this organization, which is so well-funded, couldn't innovate. So I wrote an article called Innovation Demands Freedom, Why America Innovates and Why India May Never. And this article shared my objective um, observations. It also talked about the corruption I saw. In fact, a building got burned down, half of it, where the bookkeeper was killed um, while the director general was under embezzlement charges. Again, no allegations. And I made these observations and said here, and I was willing to have an open forum. The article gets published. And immediately after the article gets published, the editor of Nature India gets threatened by the Prime Minister's Office of India, at that time Manmohan Singh. The editor is very scared. She says, Shiva, I have to pull down your article. Their article gets pulled down. So I had gone through this wonderful experience of fighting a very big opposition. And around that time, my mother had an illness called pulmonary fibrosis. By 2011, it was clear that she was going to make it. And a few months before she died, in a suitcase, she presented me a wonderful collection of all of what I had done nearly 30 years ago in 1978 on inventing email. It was all my computer code, the copyright notices, all the letters, all the artifacts. And as I looked at this, I was very saddened because I realized as a 14-year-old boy in Newark, New Jersey, where I was treated in as, as an equal, I invented email. And I looked back and I noticed all my Indian compatriots who were not able to innovate and they were much older than me because of the fundamentally cultural system of feudalism where in that small medical college in Newark, New Jersey, my boss was not jealous of me, he supported me. So a friend of mine, David Gerzoff, who was a professor of media at Emerson, came by, looked at this and he said, Shiva, you invented email. And immediately after that, he contacted Doug Ameth, who was a technology editor at Time Magazine. And Doug came and he looked at this material, spent about two to three weeks looking at it, and he wrote a wonderful article in November 2011 called A Man Who Invented Email, and everyone can go read about it. It basically traced the entire uh, facts about my inventing email. After that, the Smithsonian contacted me. In fact, I wanted to keep all this material. I was going to donate it to my alma mater, MIT, because I didn't want it in my home. I didn't want it to get destroyed. MIT, the curator of the MIT Museum said, Shiva, this does not belong here we would be stealing, it really belongs in a much larger museum. And um, she had the Smithsonian contact me. The Smithsonian contacted me, and then they requested my materials, which I donated to them. And on February 16, 2012, the Smithsonian held a wonderful ceremony. This was literally one month after my mom had died on January 7, 2012, where they accepted all these materials. We signed it over. It's a beautiful picture of me with the Washington Monument in the background. So clearly, this was a great day to celebrate the American dream, and that's what, what it should have been. In fact, a Washington Post reporter wrote a wonderful article that day called V.A. Shiva Ayadure Honored as the Inventor of Email. Now, you can imagine this is a great story, not only for, you know, lauding that 14-year-old boy, but it's really, as I mentioned, about the American dream. But what occurred within moments of that article going out is in some ways where the the real story of the invention of email starts. Because the facts are black and white. I converted the entire uh, inner office mail system, inbox, outbox, folders, attachments, every feature we see now in every email system, to the electronic version. I was the first to call it email. And I have the US copyright for it. One thing I didn't mention was when I went to MIT in 1981, I met with the president of MIT because I was also the student body president. And he said, Shiva, it's unfortunate that the Supreme Court doesn't recognize software patents. What I did not know was in 1980, 
the Copyright Act of 1976, which only let you protect software, I mean, only let you protect novels and movies, was amended in 1980 to become the Computer Software Act of 1980. What that meant was you could protect software inventions using copyright. Dr. Paul Gray, 1981, when I met with him, told me I should do that. So I actually wrote away to the Copyright Office, got the form, there was no internet, there was no PDFs, filled it out, and submitted it, and August 30th, 1982, I was officially issued the first U.S. copyright for email, officially recognizing me as the inventor of email. So the point is, by February 16, uh, 2012, there was never a controversy about this, because I invented the system, wrote 50,000 lines of code, it cost a system of 35 programs, called it email, and had the U.S. copyright. But the day it went into the Smithsonian, the day the Washington Post reported on it, immediately vitriol comes out. Uh, articles called me an imposter, took my MIT picture and called me an imposter. Another article came out in Gawker Media. The first one was in Gawker Media, Gizmodo. Another one came out in Gizmodo calling me an asshole, a dick, a fraud. And that led into racist vitriol. People saying this curry-stained Indian should be beaten and hanged and later things like calling me a nigger Indian. And all of this occurred very rapidly. And what's even more interesting is right after this occurred, you see this huge group of historians under the aegis of what's called the special interest group start attacking me, calling me a self-promoter, self-promotional. What I didn't know was during the 30-odd years that I didn't promote myself, a major U.S. defense company called Raytheon had rewritten the narrative of the invention of email to protect their interests in the growing cybersecurity market. Some of you may know in 2011, um, and some of you may know in 9-11, after 9-11 took place, there was a huge growth in cybersecurity. Raytheon, which was primarily a missile defense company, started building a cybersecurity division, as many other defense companies did, including Northrop Grumman and General Dynamics, Lockheed. They all wanted to get into the lucrative cybersecurity market. Raytheon bought a company called BBNN, which used to do acoustic systems, acoustic signal analysis. Well, in that company was a guy called Ray Tomlinson, who did not create email, as the facts show very simply. What he had done was create early method of attaching text to a remote file what you would call an early version of Reddit or an early version of a wall post. Nothing near email. In fact, he didn't write any original code. He took old code from a program called SendMessage, which allowed you to add text to the bottom of an uh, electronic file, and he edited it using code from another program called CPYNet, so you could attach um, uh, text to a remote file. So it's basically a remote file attachment program. And he said it was 15 minutes. But Raytheon, after they bought BBNN in 2009, rebranded themselves. It's good old American marketing. The new site had the at logo, which was used to designate the email or the address of the um, was used to designate the address of an individual by the server. It was used as a separator, and they rebranded their entire company as the hosting the inventor of email. They were the great innovators. The at symbol was their logo, and Ray Tomlinson was their mascot. And by the way, you know, Ray Tomlinson, for them, played the part. He had a beard, glasses, and was of, you know, American descent, right? So he, he almost was like a casting call. And what's fascinating is if you looked at Raytheon's website, it looked like Nike's website in the sense the swoosh logo, 
a nice big uh, branding statement with, let's say, Michael Jordan. So when my stuff had gone into the Smithsonian, what I didn't know was I had basically put the facts out there against the uh, bogus history that these historians, many of them who were loyal to Raytheon, had already created, and my facts went against the marketing, the marketing program, which enabled Raytheon to essentially win against their competitor, because if they were hosting the inventor of email, then should they not get all the email cybersecurity contracts? So that's what the reality was. So it took me a while to figure all this out. But what Raytheon and these historians didn't understand was that I've been a fighter. You know, and this time I had to stand up for myself. I had not only fought the Indian government, as I shared, but even as an undergraduate at MIT, there's a picture of me, for example, burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT because I was extremely upset that MIT, as a liberal you know, institute, was having investments in apartheid, racist South Africa. There's a, a protest I led when one of my friends, Ram Monaklingam, was jailed and tortured by the Sri Lankan government when the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka invited, was invited to MIT, we chased him off campus. I made sure more women students came in, more minorities came in. We made sure food service workers got paid better. So I was a campus activist. But when this incident occurred, um, no one came to my aid. What's interesting is no one of the, of, of no Indian came to my aid. So I had to go within myself to start fighting, not for me, but for that 14-year-old boy invented email. So I gathered my wits, one of my students at MIT, we started doing research. Because when you're attacked like this, you start thinking that maybe you are wrong. I've talked to women who are rape victims. They start thinking maybe they did something wrong. So my friend Lorraine Minetti, who was my friend of, uh, since I was age 13, came up to Boston. Lorraine would cook for me, take care of me, and me and one of my students, Devin Sparks, we went through every piece of literature, historical literature written before 1970. Devin literally went and stood in the MIT, slept in the MIT libraries. And we went through thousands of articles. Nowhere did we find the term email used. Nowhere did we find any intent to create something like email. But what we did find was a smoking gun document written by one of my attackers called David Crocker. Now, David Crocker claims he's a pioneer in electronic messaging. And Crocker at that time, what he forgot was in December 1977, he had written a RAND report. Remember, December 1977, it was an end-of-year report. Rand is a very famous or very well-known analyst firm. And David Crocker written a report, which basically, in the introduction of the report, he basically said at this time, he was giving a report analyzing the state of electronic messaging of the time. And he basically said that at this time, no attempt is being made to create an electronic version of the inter-organizational paper mail system. And in that paper, he said that at this time it is impossible, it's almost impossible to create such a system because you would have to meet so many different features and needs. So what these guys, Crocker and the military, were doing with people like Tomlinson was nowhere near email. They thought it was impossible. They were creating rudimentary forms of text messaging. Remember, the military is not a collaborative environment. It's command and control. Charlie, take that hill. Jump. Do this. Simple text messaging. In that medical hospital, we were interested in collaboration, right? You were interested in people working together. That's the inter-office mail system. And that 14-year-old boy wanted to convert that to the electronic version. So David Crocker's statement, the smoking gun, clearly showed that these so-called people who had written this false narrative had no interest in creating email. In fact, they thought it was impossible. But that's what that 14-year-old boy did. So we created a website called Inventor of Email. 
Facebook.com. It was almost a second PhD for me. We put all the facts up there. We demonstrated the lies of this historians. We demonstrated the collusion. We put the whole history out there. And that's when they even ramped up their attacks even further. Because, you know, as Harry Truman said, when you cannot convince, you confuse. So they started confusing text messaging with email. The at symbol with email. This is all they had. But Raytheon had a lot of PR. And you can go look at 2012-13, where suddenly an Internet Hall of Fame is created. Then they award the Inventor of Email Award to Ray Tomlinson in reaction to the facts. So this was clear collusion. And when you really unravel this, what you really find is not just a story about the invention of email, but really the story about the brainwashing of America that is deliberately done by the military academic industrial complex. And this is not something I'm saying. You know, the eminent president, former president of the United States, Eisenhower, when he left office in his final speech, he warned Americans, him being an insider, a general, that what will destroy this country will be the military-industrial complex. Senator Fulbright, also a Republican, but very insightful, and gave a speech on the military-industrial-academic complex, the triangle. And he said this triangle would also subvert democracy. And what, what, what I discovered using my political and historical training was that I was in the midst of not just about who invented email, but a much deeper narrative. And what's fascinating is in the middle of this controversy in 2014, Walter Isaacson, who claims to be a liberal historian, writes a book. It's almost looked like it was commissioned for him. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's odd. He writes a book called The Innovators, and it's about the innovators of the digital revolution. And if you read this book, who do you see? You see pictures of Bill Gates. You see pictures of Steve Jobs. You see pictures of Sergey Brin. You see pictures of people who created the World Wide Web. But, and in fact, you see pictures of all white people. And by the way, I've never played the race card in my life. In fact, white women. But nowhere in there is a picture of that 14-year-old boy. Nowhere in there is a picture of any minority. No one there is a picture of any dark-skinned person. But he ends his book, or throughout his book, he emphasizes the concept of Raytheon, and he brings up that of our Bush who was the president of MIT in 1940 and started Raytheon. And Isaacson attributes inventions to the military, industrial, academic complex. Now what's fascinating was when I was at MIT, which by the way, I was there in and out 33 years, I won major awards. I was on the front page of MIT newspapers three times because I was being a good model minority. I was on the front page when I first came, front page on technology review when I invented Echomail, front page when I won my Fulbright. But when I said email was done before I came to MIT, I became a pariah even at MIT because I was breaking that narrative of the military-industrial complex. You see, MIT is part of the military-industrial-academic complex. And, that, and their brand is based on that all great innovations come from them, Silicon Valley, or the military. But the fact that email came outside of that military complex, industrial complex, throws a big wrench into, frankly, their branding. Because if email was developed, which it was, in Newark, New Jersey, in a medical health sciences institution, it destroys this bogus brainwashing that innovation must come from war. You know, in Tamil, we have this saying that you can touch your nose like this, or you can touch it around your nose like this. And they've convinced all of us that we as Americans should fund war and be so happy that you get Velcro and Tang.
which by the way didn't come out of the military, that also is a different story. And so the invention of email they have a problem with because the inventor is alive. And he challenges them and they have the facts to prove that email came from a small medical college. So that's why there's so much vitriol. And what's even more fascinating is that the media publications that attacked me, they've been writing, during that time they're writing amazing positive articles about Raytheon. And what's even more interesting is many of these media publications get advertising from Raytheon. So the story of the invention of email goes to the heart of collusion between media, academia, uh, the military, and big industry. That's why this is an important story. This story is not about me, and it's not about the facts about the invention of email, because those facts are obvious. A 14-year-old boy in Newark, New Jersey did invent email. What the real story here is, is why is there a controversy? Why is there, I even had to defend this. Why is it that newspapers thought it okay to call me, or blogs call me a curry sin Indian, to refer to me as a nigger Indian in 2012? This is not Jackie Robinson in the 1940s. This is 2012. Why is it that no Indians stood up? Eventually, by the way, Deepak Chopra did help. He took a, a leadership stand. Because the narrative is that innovation must come for, from war. And the narrative for many Indians and minorities is that, oh, we can achieve even be CEOs, let's say, of Google or Microsoft, but in invention, that's for a certain elite, frankly, white people. And I say this again with no attack on people of uh, the white race or anything. I'm just telling you that there's this fundamental rewriting of history that great innovations must come from either people of a particular color, the military-industrial complex, or out of big institutions. And the invention of email breaks all those molds. That's why the invention of email is important. And fundamentally, what the invention of email shows is that innovation can take place anywhere, anytime, by anybody. That's why it's important. And it's also more important because when you think about being a human being, what is being a human being all about? It's about being creative. Because ultimately, the sages of India said that the ultimate goal of life is to create and destroy and transform. That's the essence of being, but it's the aspect of creativity. And the denial of that creative aspect in every human being is a denial of being a human being. So when these people attack me, they're not attacking me or the, the facts about it. They're attacking that 14-year-old immigrant Indian kid in Newark, New Jersey who invented email. They're attacking the essence of what it means to be a human being. So I say that everyone who wants to look at the facts of the, about the invention of email, the facts are black and white. But, you know, at the end of the day, what's really important is the beginning of this year in 2016, an important event took place in a very interesting way, sort of where brains meet brawn. Hulk Hogan, the wrestler, sued Gawker Media, who had also said atrocious things about him in the media, and he won a $150 million law case. That was led by an attorney called Charles Harder. I contacted Charles and we filed suit also against Gawker Media for $35 million. And after our filing suit, 30 days later, Gawker declared bankruptcy. And most recently, today, as a filming of this event, Gawker Media has agreed to settle the case and pay me out payments and it's a settlement of the defamation case. So today is a victory not only for Shiva Idre, the inventor of email, but it's a victory for all people, all humans, who strive to seek a better day for themselves and their family and want to recognize that being human is...